Perhaps you all have heard of the name of William Tyndale. William Tyndale was born in England sometime around the year 1494. About the only insight that we have into his childhood is a remark that he made later in life concerning his childhood. He tells us that he once read in an English chronicle that King Alfred had centuries earlier caused the Bible to be translated into the native English tongue. Well, whatever became of that translation? And why were there no English translations in Tyndale's day? This single memory is prophetic of his career as a Bible translator. We actually first meet Tyndale at Oxford University, where he was deeply disturbed by the fact that no one read the Bible. Instead, students were immersed in ancient heathen, as he called them, and he writes, in the universities they have been ordained that no man shall look on the scripture until he be nozzled in heathen learning eight or nine years and armed with false principles with which he is clean shut out of the understanding of Scripture. We are uncertain of the details, but eventually Tyndale transferred to Cambridge University. And there he discovered the writings of the Lutheran Reformers. It is highly probable that he actually associated with a little group of reform-minded students who met nearby at a place called the White Horse Inn. The end was derisively called Little Germany, because students gathered there at Little Germany, and they would read the writings of Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon and other German reformers. That end, by the way, is now gone, but there is a plaque on a wall nearby that says, this is where the end once existed. After graduation, Tyndale became a private tutor of a man's name, Sir John Walsh of Gloucestershire. And Tyndale sat at the table with Sir John, and he entertained many venerable people throughout the nation of England. And he often discussed with them the possibility of an English translation of the Bible. Tyndale also began preaching out in the open air until several villainous men hatched a plot to bring him down. They began spreading rumors about his character. Wanting advice, Tyndale went back over to Oxford to see an old professor, a humanist named William Latimer. Tyndale had actually begun having doubts about whether he should even be preaching. But Latimer fired the young man's mind with a single sentence. Latimer said, do you not know that the Pope is the very Antichrist whom the Scripture speaketh of? But beware of what you say, for, it shall, for if you shall be perceived to be of that opinion, it will cost you your life. Well, Tyndale soon became convinced that the plight of England the ignorance of the common man, the worldliness of the clergy had a single source. There was no vernacular translation of the Bible. 
So he began dedicating himself to the possibility of bringing an English Bible into existence. Famously, Tyndale found himself embroiled later on in a dispute with a, matter, with a man who had a very different opinion. And that man told him the common people were actually better off without the word of God. After all, they had the laws of the Pope. Those should suffice. And Tyndale offered his now famous reply, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years pass, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of Scripture than thou dost. And behind those famous words lurked a growing conviction of sola scriptura, the Bible alone. Well, Tyndale soon found support for his ambitions from a wealthy man named Humphrey Monmouth. Humphrey Monmouth would eventually end up in the Tower of London for supporting his Bible translation efforts. Sadly, though, there was nowhere in all of England where Tyndale felt safe to carry out a translation. So consequently, in the year 1524, he left all of his belongings with Monmouth and sailed for Hamburg, not knowing that he would never set foot in England again. For the rest of his life, Tyndale was on the run. He came to Cologne where his plot was discovered and he barely escaped. He eventually came to Worms where he published his first edition of the New Testament. German merchants were all too happy to smuggle those New Testaments into England. Tyndale also spent time at Antwerp where he arranged for transport of a second edition of the Bible, the New Testament in particular. Tyndale's Bibles were continuously smuggled into England undetected until the year 1526 when Tunstall, who was the Bishop of London, finally discovered the Bibles. He ordered a public burning of the Bibles. A huge bonfire was lit at Paul's Cross in London after Tunstall preached a pious sermon attacking Tyndale's translation as full of errors and full of heresy. But it was too late. Tyndale's translation was already widely circulating beyond London and beyond the reach of the bishop. Eventually, Tyndale completed three editions of the New Testament, along with many commentaries and practical helps for actually reading the New Testament. Finally, in May of 1535, Tyndale fell victim to a plot to lure him out of hiding and into the grasp of Catholic soldiers. He was shut up in the castle of Ord, the state prison of the lower countries. He was left for several months in a lonely cell with little to eat, threadbare clothes, sickness, and cold. On October 6th, 1536, he was led to the stake. He was strangled, and his body was burned. His last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. So what was his crime? 
This crime was giving Englishmen a Bible in their own language. Tyndale and numerous other people throughout church history have forsaken their homes, their belongings, their safety, their very lives to give you the copy of the Bible that's lying open in your lap. They laid down their lives so we could hear the voice of God. Within months of his death, his third edition became the first Bible published in England. Ironically, it was published on the king's own press with Tyndale's name on the title page. It has been estimated that over four-fifths of his translation was brought right into the King James Version. And most people don't realize this, but our modern translations, the NASB, the ESV, many of our translations are actually derived right from the King James Version. So a huge part of your Bible owes to Tyndale. In his preface to the Pentateuch, Tyndale wrote, I have perceived by experience how it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the Scripture were plainly laid before their eyes in their mother tongue that they might see the process, order, and meaning of the text. Now, when you and I think of the 16th century Reformation, we think of it as just that, a Reformation. But there can be no Reformation without the Scripture. The Reformation actually was a Bible translation movement. Vernacular translations sprang up not only in England, but all across the European continent. And when those translations came alive, all of a sudden the Reformation was born. Now, two weeks ago, I told you the harrowing story of the Judson's mission work to Burma. Last week, we looked at the biography of John Huss, who was burned at the stake. And today, I tell you the story of Tyndale. So why am I telling you these stories? I'm telling you these stories because they connect us organically to the final discipleship lessons that Jesus gives in the upper room the night before he was crucified. So with that, let's turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, where we find Jesus still in the upper room. Let's remember also the lessons of John 15. The chapter began with a summons to abide in Christ, the true vine. We will not be productive unless we remain attached to Christ. That is, attached to Christ through His Word. We will accomplish nothing apart from new life in Christ. That's what Tyndale understood. This is why you've got to get the Bible to people so they can discover Christ. And Jesus said in verse 5, apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus also warned in chapter 15 that his disciples would come up against swift opposition. And that opposition, in the case of the apostles, would come from the religious world. The religious world refused the teaching of the New Testament 
and the preaching of Jesus Christ and his apostles. If you think about it, quite literally, that religious world refused new revelation, what we now call the New Testament. Well, what sort of faith would we have without the teaching of Christ and the apostles, the New Testament? And likewise, the religious world of the 16th century in Europe refused to allow that new revelation to be translated into English. Tyndale's calling was to return the teaching of Christ and the apostles to the common man. And the opposition that he received, like Jesus and the apostles, came from the religious world. That brings us into chapter 16. And Jesus must now prepare his disciples for his imminent departure. He will leave them behind in a hostile world. He will go to a cross. He will resurrect. He will ascend to a heavenly throne. And Jesus' great commission will then send those apostles all the way to the ends of the earth. But for now, Jesus has a great concern. And it actually may surprise us. Jesus' primary concern is not the disciples' death or martyrdom. His primary concern is their apostasy. Look at verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus would not warn the disciples against falling away unless it was possible to fall away. But what does falling away look like? Well, just consider how the Jewish leadership fell away from the Old Testament and put their own Messiah to death. Or consider how the religious world of Tyndale's day forbade vernacular translations of the New Testament. If the Jews of the first century put their own Messiah to death, what can the apostles expect from the same Jewish leaders? Well, Jesus will answer that question in verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. The Jews believed they actually pleased God by killing Jesus. Likewise, the Jews believed they did God's will by persecuting and martyring Jesus' followers. The religious leaders of the 15th century and the 16th century believed they were serving God by killing John Huss and William Tyndale. Would you listen to what Paul told the Galatians about his pre-conversion commitment to Judaism? Here's what Paul wrote. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. How? I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. 
And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. Paul's persecution was rooted in his commitment to Judaism and the Old Testament. His persecution was actually rooted in a misinterpretation of the prophets and Moses. And understand that Paul quite literally had a better knowledge of the law and the prophets than any of us in this room. He likely had the entire thing memorized, the entire Old Testament. Nevertheless, listen to what Paul confessed to Timothy later on. I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent But I received mercy, here's why, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That's really astonishing. Paul did not understand his own actions. He was a violent persecutor of the church, but also ignorant of the truth. What truth? The truth that he was reading in the Old Testament. And listen to what Paul told Agrippa. This is Acts 26 and verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul, the terrorist. Paul was convinced, though, that he was actually doing the right thing. That was his own word. I was convinced. I'm doing the right thing by opposing Jesus of Nazareth. He believed that he had a moral obligation to cast Christians out of the synagogues and to cast his vote for their death. Paul derive those convictions from reading the Old Testament. But Paul was wrong. Nevertheless, his actions explain why Jesus gave the warning that he gave in verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, Paul, will think he is offering service to God. Friends, verse 2 is an exact description of Paul who suddenly bursts in the scenes in the book of Acts. And verse 2 is likewise a description of Paul's experiences after he converted. The tables were turned and Paul became the persecuted. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, 24-25, five times, I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. The Jews of the synagogue thought they pleased God by persecuting Paul. But they were completely mistaken. Now sadly, Jesus is warning in verse 2 wasn't merely a warning against Judaism. It equally describes a centuries-old problem within Christendom. 
when religious leaders persecute people like John Huss and William Tyndale. Tyndale was martyred for translating the Bible. Last week, I described for you how the medieval church celebrated Mass before burning John Huss at the stake. When Thomas Cranmer, one of England's leading reformers, was burned at the stake, his martyrdom was prefaced by a sermon. A sermon celebrating the will of God and the destruction of heretics. So unquestionably, there is a false religious zeal that believes it offers service to God, but is completely mistaken. And one word for this zeal is apostasy. And that's precisely what Jesus warns against again in verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. So then, what lies at the heart of apostasy? Well, the answer comes in verse 3. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. We saw the same truth last week in John 15 and verse 21. The one who falls away does not truly know the Father, and consequently does not know Jesus One of John's major themes is Jesus' relationship with the Father. To know Jesus is to know the Father. And to know the Father is to know Jesus. And if you do not understand this relationship, you do not know the Father. And you do not know Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. To oppose Jesus is to oppose God the Father. And in our own time, we can indeed experience hostility from a religious world that does not truly embrace Jesus. They talk about God. They may even talk about Jesus as a good teacher, as a countercultural rabbi or a revolutionary, but they often do not understand his true identity with the Father. And when that is the case, you can be certain that world will evince hostility to authentic Christianity. So Jesus warns the disciples and us ahead of time so that we don't lose heart, so that we don't lose faith. Hence, verse 4, first half of the verse, Jesus says, But I have said these things to you. That when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Now, in the context, the phrase, their hour, refers to the sudden outbreak of Jewish persecution that would fall on the church, and even more immediately on Jesus Christ himself. In fact, before the night is out, Jesus will be passed through two Jewish trials, One before Annas, and a second before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And that Sanhedrin will find Jesus guilty of blasphemy. The following morning, the Sanhedrin will reconvene and reiterate the same verdict. 
The Jewish leaders will then pass Jesus off of the Romans, where neither Pilate nor Herod will find fault with Jesus. In fact, Pilate will seek to release Jesus. But suddenly a riot begins rumbling through the Jewish crowd. The Sanhedrin will whip the mob into a frenzy, and they will begin calling out loudly for Jesus' execution. And friends, that is not the end, but only the beginning of mob violence against Christians. It was a mob that drove Huss to execution. In Acts, when Paul and Silas came preaching in Thessalonica, they went into a synagogue of the Jews. And for three Sabbath days, Paul reasoned with the Jews according to the Scripture, that is, the Old Testament. And Luke tells us in Acts 17 and verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Well, how does that message go over? Luke says, but the Jews were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. Set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come also here to us. Friends, that is their hour to which Jesus refers The hour when the Jewish opposition just gets whipped up into a frenzy and seeks to destroy the church. And the book of Acts is just full of persecution. So Jesus wants his followers to know, look, it's coming. So remember, when their hour comes, Jesus says, I warned you ahead of time. Don't be alarmed. I told you it was coming. Now, friends, had these things been happening earlier? Well, no, not really. Not compared to what's coming. And that's why verse 4 ends this way. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. Now, let's interpret this very cautiously. Jesus was opposed on earlier visits to Jerusalem. We've seen that again and again. The Jews have previously sought to kill him, that is true, but they never succeeded. And things never got as bad as they would later that night when Jesus was finally arrested. And as for the disciples, Jesus' presence largely protected them. He absorbed most of the opposition himself. And Jesus knew how to skillfully move in and out of dangerous situations. For instance, when he heard that John the Baptist had been in prison much earlier, he moved quietly out of Judea up into Galilee. Jesus is very, very careful. He took precautions during his ministry to avoid premature arrest and execution on several occasions. And his wisdom shields his followers against persecution. But that protection is about to go away. Jesus himself is going away. 
And that's the very painful truth that he reminds them of now in verse 5. But now I am going. I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? Jesus is departing. And the disciples must come to terms with his departure. Their world will never be the same. But why does Jesus say in verse 5, none of you ask me where are you going? Some have alleged a contradiction with John 13 and verse 36 earlier that night. There, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Friends, there's no contradiction. Probably Jesus means something like now. Now, John 16, none of you are asking me. Now, earlier, they did indeed ask him. Peter asked him, you know, where are you going? But now, later in the night, they are silent, sobered. It could also be that Jesus recognized that the earlier question from Peter was not all that sincere. Jesus said he was leaving, and Peter's response was something like, well, where are you going? As if he's going to leave and come back in a few hours or something. We ask questions in the process of making conversation at times, and we don't really even expect a detailed answer. We don't even take that conversation all that seriously. But at this point, the disciples are indeed taking Jesus very seriously. Jesus says, none of you are asking me now where I am going, because they finally recognize he is leaving. He is leaving for good. So, at this point, the disciples have really become sobered about Jesus' imminent departure. Hence, verse 6, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Reality has set in. Jesus is leaving He's not testing us. He's not joking. He's leaving. The end is coming. For a long time, the disciples seemed to have had trouble grasping the reality of Jesus' words. Again, he told them three times that he was going to die and resurrect, but they never understood. In fact, they kept fighting among themselves over who would be greatest in the kingdom. But none of them are fighting now. Sorrow has flooded their hearts. Jesus is going away. What then is the antidote to their sorrow? That's verse 7. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Here again is the Holy Spirit whom Jesus promised at the end of John chapter 15. The Helper is the Holy Spirit. However, this verse has the potential for genuine misunderstanding. What does Jesus mean when he says it is good for him to leave so the Spirit can come? Does it mean that Jesus and the Spirit can't occupy the same space? Does he mean they're not on friendly terms? 
Does he mean they cannot simultaneously minister to the people of God? No, none of that. Rather, Jesus is assuming that God's unfolding plan of redemption just will not go forward until he returns to heaven and the Spirit descends at Pentecost. In God's eternal plan of salvation, God intended to send his Son into the world to suffer and to die. And God intended to vindicate His Son by resurrecting Him from the grave and then raising Him even further to the right hand of God to a throne. God intended, in the words of Daniel 7, to exalt the resurrected Son of Man to rule over all nations. That's God's plan. And all of this is about to happen. And it will be to the advantage of the disciples that Jesus resurrect and ascend to his throne. Think about it. If Jesus fails to complete God's plan, how can that be advantageous to his disciples, to any of us? Jesus failed. What better advantage could there be than for Jesus to complete his redemptive work and to signal his completion by resurrecting and ascending triumphantly to his throne. Now, assuming that Jesus does indeed pull it off, how will the disciples know? Well, for one thing, they would see a resurrected body. But for another, they would suddenly be empowered by the Holy Spirit when Jesus arrived on his throne. When Jesus ascends to his throne, the Holy Spirit descends to convict the world that Jesus now reigns. That is the meaning then of verse 7. The helper will come and he will facilitate the preaching of the apostles. Now, these disciples had previously gone out on local missions trips with mixed success. But nothing will empower them for a global mission quite like the coming of the Holy Spirit of Pentecost. The Spirit, like a rushing mighty wind, will light their tongues on fire to preach the eternal gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's the sense in which you have to interpret verse 7. Now, at this point, friends, then we are on the brink of the next phase of God's plan of redemption. Jesus, yes, will die, but he will ascend in triumph, and the Holy Spirit will descend in convicting power. And so, Jesus turns once again to the role of the Holy Spirit. What will he do? Well, we can only begin to unpack the next several verses, but let's at least get a start. Look at verse 8. But when He, the Holy Spirit, comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So verse 8 explains the threefold mission of the Spirit. And then Jesus clarifies all three in verses 9, 10, and 11. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. 
All right, so did you follow that? Verse 8 is a general statement. Verses 9 through 11 develop the statement. So verse 8, again, speaks of three particular areas in which the Holy Spirit will bring conviction. He will bring conviction regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. Verse 9 then develops a statement concerning sin. Verse 10 develops a statement concerning righteousness. And verse 11 develops a statement concerning judgment. All right, now we're going to spend some more time here next week, but let's at least get a brief sense of each. In verse 9, the Spirit will convict the world of sin. But one great sin in particular, the sin of disbelief. Friends, there are many, many, many sins a person can commit. And Paul categorizes all kinds of sins in Romans chapter 1. But ultimately, there is one sin that guarantees a person will never enter the kingdom of heaven. One sin. Well, what is it? The sin of disbelief. You must believe in Jesus Christ. But how hard is it to get people to believe in Jesus Christ? I mean, Jesus just spent three years preaching, and they're about to kill him. How hard is it to get people to believe in Jesus Christ? Well, friends, you need the help of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who convinces people of their sin of disbelief. Don't you dare go it alone. Then in verse 10, we're told the Spirit will convict concerning righteousness. And that seems really straightforward until you read the second half of the verse. Because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. How does that statement connect with the earlier statement about the Holy Spirit convicting concerning righteousness? Well, once again, you've got to return to God's plan of redemption. Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to the Father's right hand were a vindication of Jesus. Specifically, that Jesus was, in fact, righteous. Jesus' return to the Father was a statement that God really did approve of Jesus of Nazareth. God raised him from the dead. Why? Because he deserved to be raised from the dead. Why? Because he was perfectly righteous. His death was unjust. He was righteous and did not deserve death on the cross. God's resurrection of Jesus and his exaltation of him right to the clouds was a vindication of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So think about it, friends. The ascension wasn't merely some sort of passive return to glory. It was, in fact, an emphatic statement. The world killed an unrighteous man, and God vindicated him by resurrecting him to a throne. He was righteous altogether. So the Holy Spirit, therefore, comes and will convict people of the truth that Jesus was righteous. He deserved to be resurrected. He deserved to go back to the Father's right hand. The whole world needs to embrace this truth. That's verse 10. And now verse 11. The Spirit will also convict the world of judgment. Well, what judgment? The judgment of the ruler of this world. Now that's going to need some explaining. 
it may actually strike us a little funny. Satan's been judged? Yes, the Spirit comes to convict people that Satan has been judged. And when did the Spirit come? He came at Pentecost. So was Satan judged before Pentecost? Yes. He was judged at the cross. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2. At the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And the Greek text speaks of Christ as stripping away their armor and their weapons. Paul says they are undressed and rendered powerless. And in that same context, Paul tells us that we are no longer taken captive by philosophy and deceitful teaching. Likewise, in Hebrews 2 and verse 14, the author tells us that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who had power over death, that is, the devil. So friends, put it all together, and what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, particularly the sin of disbelief. The Holy Spirit will also convict the world that Jesus was vindicated as the righteous one. And the Holy Spirit will convict the world that Satan has been judged. Now, Jesus is concerned, in verse 1, that we not fall away. That's what happened in Wycliffe's day. The church had become so corrupt, they martyred the very person who tried to give them the Bible in their own tongue. It was the religious world who came for Jesus and crucified him in Jerusalem. And through much of church history, it has been the religious world that has come for Christians. And what that means, friends, is the religious world all around us can be very corrupt. Do you realize that? The religious world all around us can be very corrupt. So how do we combat apostasy? And the answer is, Jesus' answer is, we need the Holy Spirit. He needs to convince us of the apostate state of the world. He needs to convince us of the apostate state of Christians, so-called. He needs to convince us of the judgment of Satan. But friends, don't forget the whole passage, again, was prefaced by verse 1, because Jesus is concerned for his disciples. He's talking to his own All that to say that we need to understand that the conviction of the Holy Spirit is still for us today. Not just for the world at large who need Jesus, but it's still for us today. And we need to allow the Holy Spirit to come and to continue convicting us of our sin. We need the Holy Spirit to come and to continue exalting Christ in our hearts. And we need the Holy Spirit to go right on convicting us that Satan has been judged. You don't have to fear the world out there. Satan has been judged. The Helper did not come once, only to leave. Listen to what Jesus said earlier in the conversation that night. John 15, verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another Helper, but listen to this, to be with you, Forever. 
So whatever the Holy Spirit does when he shows up, he's just going to keep on doing that forever. He's yours forever. So we need the Holy Spirit to remain with us and to continue his threefold work of conviction indefinitely. And that's why we really need to come back to verses 8 through 11 a bit more, in a bit more detail next week. My friends, it really is appropriate for us to ask God's Spirit to just keep on working in our hearts and to keep us from falling away. And what does that look like? Ask God's Holy Spirit to continually convict us of our sin, particularly the sin of our disbelief. Ask the Holy Spirit to continually convict us that Jesus was vindicated. He really, truly is the righteous one. Just keep on magnifying Christ in our hearts. And we need the Holy Spirit to continually convict us that Satan has been judged. Yes, he's alive, but he has been judged. And what this means, friends, is that we are not allowed to wallow in defeat and despair. Christ has already defeated Satan He has already overcome the world. Christ has already freed us from the stranglehold of disbelief and given us faith to believe. The Holy Spirit then abides with us and continually convicts us with respect to these three truths. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that you have sent your Spirit and that he has come to remain with us, to abide with us, And I pray, Lord, that we would submit to his conviction. And Lord, I pray that you would help us in our struggle with disbelief. Even as believers, we can struggle with disbelief. I pray that your Holy Spirit would exalt Christ in our hearts. That we would indeed recognize that he does indeed reign and rule over the nations. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with conviction that Christ has already thwarted Satan's purposes and that we have the power to resist him and he must flee. So give us strength this week, Lord, as we live under the control of your Holy Spirit. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.